Prestige listeners, it's Derek, and I am very lucky to be joined today by Elizabeth Shackelford. Elizabeth is a former U.S. diplomat and the currently foreign affairs columnist for the Chicago Tribune. She is the author of the book The Descent Channel, American Diplomacy in a Dishonest Age. Uh, and she's also, and this is the uh, will probably be the main topic of our conversation. I don't want to prejudice anything, but uh, she's also the author of a report that was published last August uh, by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs called "Less Is More: A New Strategy for U.S. Security Assistance to Africa." We will have links to the book and the report in the show notes. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So I do want to get into the report because um, it's obviously timely, and I think it's a, a very interesting look at U.S. involvement broadly across Africa. Not you know, there's been a lot of focus on West Africa, obviously of late, but uh, in in some other places as well. So I do want to get into that, but I thought maybe we could start off with a uh, just a bit about your experience as a former diplomat. Uh, you worked in South Sudan. Uh, you got to experience that end of U.S. foreign policy. You also uh, worked for a time at the State Department under Rex Tillerson in the beginning uh, days of the Trump administration and, and got to see that. Well, let's, let's just I'll just let you describe that experience. Uh, why don't we? Why, so why don't we start with just talking a bit about your your own history? Sure. Well, I, I joined the Foreign Service uh, at a time when I was, I mean, absolutely the definition of the bright-eyed, bushy-tailed you know, young American who believed in the, you know, truly in the American mission around the world. And you know, I went in with just kind of prepared and ready to um, really just think that what we were doing made a lot of sense. And I learned on the ground. I mean, I still believe the U.S. can, can and does do a lot of important things around the world. But there's just a different look to it when you're on the ground, uh, kind of on the front lines, especially in the places where, um, you know, we're working with governments that are not exactly aligned with our values and the things that we say we're out there to do. So my first tour, actually, luckily was in Poland. I got to see kind of how U.S. diplomacy works in a place with a good partner, a good ally, a fully staffed mission uh, with all the different parts of the U.S. government represented. And then I went to South Sudan, which was somewhat the opposite. I was there in the six months leading up to the start of the um, South Sudan civil war. Um, I got to watch how we missed the signs leading up to these things, how we react and some really impressive things we can do when we want a crisis and, um, and you know, what happens when we start picking up the pieces of, you know, a shattered plan for a country around us. So um, that was that was South Sudan. Um, there's a lot more about that in the book, as you would suggest. But that was really a learning ground for me. It informed uh, my real interest in probing deeper into what shapes our priorities and our policies and our habits uh, when we're engaging with different countries. And um, you know, as you suggest, I mean, I, I spent most of my career. Um, in Africa, both with the State Department and before. And my last tour, uh, which was when I decided to, to leave the State Department, I was serving the U.S. mission in Somalia. So uh, that was a place where we, I'm sure we can get into it more. We can talk about that special time, uh, which I hope we don't come to repeat soon. Uh, but I'm, I'm not going to hold my breath on that. You mentioned being in South Sudan and, and seeing kind of the mist signs, I guess, the indications that something was going wrong that, that were not picked up on by the U.S. And I, I, one of the things we talk about some on this show, we probably should talk about it more, uh, is the question of how well institutionally, not speaking about individual people working in a mission or, uh, you know, on a desk in the U.S. dealing with a particular place, but institutionally, uh, whether the United States really understands the parts of the world that it tries to get involved in. Um, and, you know, we'll get into more of this specifically with respect to Africa, but, but can you comment on just that sort of phenomenon and that observation? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really interesting uh, contradiction because when I worked in the government and especially when I worked in the field, um, we have some remarkable experts. We have we have people who have you know, really deeply learned some of these countries and the cultures and the regions where we work. And I will tell you now, for every crisis or issue where the U.S. government gets it, gets it wrong, you will find in the archives, uh, you know, people who were sending cables up to up to the top in Washington saying, guys, this is what's happening. And we're not we're not reacting in the right way. We've seen a number of things, you know, leak out to the press in the past few years, much more so, um, you know, in and since the Trump administration kind of dissent cables leaking out where your career staff are are waving the flags and trying to get attention to different issues. So I want to put that out there because I want people to understand that there are some remarkable people inside the government who do know what's going on. But there's a big disconnect. It's often between, you know, the folks in the field, you know, at the embassies and at the missions around the world who are seeing things firsthand and up front um, and, and Washington. And, you know, I'm not going to claim 100 percent of the time the field gets it right and Washington gets it wrong. But there are some elements at play that really shape who sees what and how. And, you know, Washington is always looking at a bigger picture and the field, you know, the folks at the embassies and the missions are always looking at um, kind of the bilateral relationships and what's happening in a specific place. So that does color it. But I will say that I talk about this in in the report as well. One of the factors that I think people aren't aware of that drives so much of what we do and makes it hard for us to change is inertia. And inertia has a really big impact on making it hard for us to change, even when there are people who are recognizing the signs that, you know, We've got we've had a policy for you know two administrations and it's not working. We should change it. Uh, but there's this simple fact of any administration, and this gets, this is where we get into the kind of the political actors versus the career actors, and and there is a big difference there. There are different priorities and there are different timelines involved. And I always like to use the example of Afghanistan and pulling out of Afghanistan. Everybody has known, and there's report after report after report inside the government saying, this isn't working, we're not going to win, we know what's going wrong. But administration after administration, no one left. Why didn't? Why was nobody willing to leave before Biden? Because you won't get in trouble for continuing to do something bad. But if you change the policy, and it happens to be worse, and you never know if it will or not, because we can't predict the future, if you change the policy, you will be responsible for what change brings that is bad. So it's just part of the incentive structure in the political nature of of what shapes our foreign policy quite frequently. In your experience, is it laid out that explicitly or are people finding reasons that I guess make sense to them to continue policies that otherwise appear to be? I mean, I think about overar- the, the overarching Biden administration foreign policy which hasn't been that much different as much as they criticized the Trump administration and certainly criticized Trump. And everybody seemed to agree that, you know, he's a jerk to our allies and he's, you know, he's, you know, doing all these terrible things around the world. I I don't know that the substance has changed that much. And I wonder, even in that dramatic a a changeover, what the thought process is behind just, (laughs) you know, let's keep doing the Abraham Accords. Let's keep doing, you know, what we were doing with China. Let's keep doing all these things that uh, really are more continuity than than change, it seems like. I mean, nobody's going to say that explicitly, that it's just really hard to turn this giant ship around. But you you can certainly tell how that plays, right? I mean, why have there not been more changes to our relationship with China? Well, Every time you change something, especially in this political environment, someone's going to going to beat you over the head about it. And that certainly goes with, you know, our kind of fairly um, Trump approach to China. But, um, you know, I do think I don't want I don't like to make light of the fact that the change in tone has been important. I mean, I do think that that is something notable when you're working in a world of diplomacy, words and temperature uh, and outreach do really matter a lot. Um, they are stepping stones. But it, it comes back to that to that fundamental disconnect between having a foreign policy that is run by political actors who are on, at best, a four-year timeline. I mean, they're really on like, like a 15-month timeline before everything starts focusing on what's going to impact the next election. 
And foreign policy, which, you know, in many, many cases are kind of foreign affairs can take a generation to change. And I think that we see that a lot with, you know, we'll get to this, but with the issue of security sector assistance, because there's this deep desire to quote unquote, do something and to do something that looks like it's meaningful. But those shorter term things that look more impressive, you know, selling lots of weapons or training lots of people or um, you know, building a drone base. I mean, all of that, it's, it's not, those aren't able to address a lot of the underlying causes of some of the security issues that we're trying to address around the world. So I have sympathy, uh, frankly, with anybody trying to improve our foreign policy in a political arena. But it's also one of the reasons I think that it's so important that, you know, we do more to empower the career folks who work on regions for a much longer period of time and ha- can have that longer timeline. Um, and I found that, you know, you can watch the growth of the National Security Council over time and the kind of more political, the more political appointments that go in and out through the State Department and other um, arms of our you know, civilian foreign affairs. And what ends up happening is that if everything has to be answered in the White House and you're not empowering people who can look at that longer timeline, especially on issues that are just not a high priority in the White House, then it becomes harder for us to have a more beneficial foreign policy over a long term, you know, not just in the top places where the U.S. is most concerned, but really all around the world. That leads into my next question, which sort of which starts to get us into the the report, the reason that we're, we're here with a foreign policy in places that don't get a lot of media attention unless something terrible happens, some catastrophe, a terrorist attack or, or what have you, uh, which I think applies, broadly speaking, to to most of Africa. The American voters aren't paying attention to what's happening in West Africa or Ethiopia unless it it's big enough and, and kind of violent enough usually to hit the news. So how much of the political concern feeds into this obsessive almost focus on security relationships above all other considerations in a place like this? I mean, it's it's a matter of, I mean, a few factors. The biggest one being where are the resources? And when you're talking about um, an entire continent that is, you know, totally underfocused, uh, Africa, um, you know, you got to look at where can you, you know, where can you find resources to make a difference? And um, let's say, consider you're looking at this from the perspective of an ambassador to a uh, you know, West African country. Um, you're not going to get a lot of the very, very wee State Department budget and the comparably wee, uh, you know, tiny little development budget that we have. And you're trying to build a relationship and you're trying to build influence. So, you know, I, I often talk about how we've over-securitized these relationships and people often immediately say, well, it's not DOD's fault. You know, it's not the Pentagon. And I don't blame the Pentagon for this. I blame the entire um, institutional structure that we have because where are the resources? Where are you going to be able to get money? Well, a tiny, tiny, tiny part of the security sector assistance budget for the Pentagon absolutely dwarfs all the money that we have for anything on the civilian side. So this is, you know, probably at the heart of it. One of the big, biggest is, issues is just a matter of resources. And, you know, we, we have understaffed um, embassies uh, all across Africa. We aren't spending enough on development aid to achieve the things that we claim we're trying to do. And so, you know, what you end up having is just the biggest weight, the people and the um, initiatives that the citizens in these countries are seeing are primarily military. Now, if you look at the most recent U.S.-Africa strategy document, which came out in 2022, you know, it speaks very highly of the importance of our economic and trade relationships, of improving economic development, of, of course, you know, democracy and governance and climate, um, climate change assistance, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, you know, where most of the resources are going, I should say with a caveat, humanitarian assistance is the biggest spend that we have. Um, in a lot of these countries because of because of war, because of, um, you know, all sorts of other other issues. But but in terms of what's really kind of shaping our relationships, security sector assistance and military assistance is largely doing that. And you can look at reports and I've actually I mean, I've recently seen some uh, that were sent to be by someone researching some of these issues from 
20 years ago. Um, uh, a paper that was out of DOD and one of their research centers, which pointed out all of these same problems. We have a short timeline. We're putting too much into the security sector. We're not, you know, we, we need to invest more on the underlying causes of the violence that we're trying to address and the instability that we're trying to address. This is a Pentagon report from 20 years ago addressing these same issues. I mean, it, it could have, you know, you could have dropped half of my report into it. So it's not that we don't understand this, but the way that we resource the different tools in the foreign policy toolbox, especially in Africa, it's just inevitable that, you know, even if you give equal weight to other issues in your strategy documents and in your you know, country strategies, it's you're just not going to be able to do as much with the resources that we're given to address governance um, democracy, economic issues, et cetera. So I think you, you've alluded to this, if, you know, that there were reports 20 years ago that are saying, you know, largely the same things, but, uh, the language in which these security assistance packages are couched and, and this focus on security is couched, uh, nowadays is still, uh, you know, we may be moving out of this, but it's still counterterrorism. It's still war on terror. <laughs> stuff but i i think the roots go back further than that can you can you talk a little bit about how far back we have to go or or what the sort of historical backdrop is for this just you know securitized essentially view of africa that that uh, dominates the the policy arena i mean absolutely basically the entire post-colonial period of u.s engagement with africa has has had some element of uh, you kind of security assistance being uh, a, a major goal. Now we also had our various and sundry, um, you know, attempts to, I don't know, control who was in power and uh, foster coups and that type of thing. But if you basically go back to looking at the entire Cold War period, our focus there was how do we have influence and get different countries on our side. And, you know, once again, what do we have to offer that looks flashy and cool? We have security sectors. So in the Cold War, you know, we saw a lot of that being handed out, a big increase in it, all in that kind of competition with the Soviet Union to see who, you know, which teams we can win. And um, at the time, we didn't pretend that we cared what type of governance they had. In fact, we frequently flouted the one that was the better, better um, opportunity for a kind of more democratic leadership. Um, and we used this as a, you know, as a, as a tool to gain access and influence to leaders across the continent. Now, End of the Cold War, there was a little bit less for a while, you know, kind of reigned in a lot of our, our, our outreach around the world, but certainly our security sector assistance in Africa. And then 9-11 happens. And you're, you're, you're absolutely right. It was for a different reason, but we kind of use a very similar, um, similar approach in terms of what was our go-to tool. Our go-to tool is, is you know, how can, we, um, how can we influence these governments and, and get a foothold in, you know, working with their, with their militaries. And then... The purpose was to combat extremism, to combat terrorism. Um, our security sector assistance increased a lot at the time on the basic premise, which makes total sense. If we help these um, countries build stronger militaries and they and, and stronger counterterrorism programs, they can do more and we don't have to do, do it. That's all really been an assumption that we've made with all of our security sector assistance in the post-9-11 era. It even began before that because you had uh, kind of your first footprints of Al-Qaeda with uh, the big embassy bombings in the 1990s. So this was something that that was kind of spreading out more in in Africa even before <clears throat> Americans were paying much attention. But you know, so now we've seen this this big focus on counterterrorism for two decades. And while everyone's in agreement that you know that's no longer the primary focus of what we're doing, you know, again, you look back at the 2022 strategy document, and it almost feels a little bit like. Okay, we're still focusing on counterterrorism on an, and counterinsurgency efforts. Control, find, replace, you know, uh, the war on terror with great power competition. And the solution that we are offering for wanting to counter Russia and China, which are both mentioned over and over and over again in the strategy document, is you go back to where we have resources. Where do we have resources to offer? Security sector assistance. That's just where the money is. So um, it's been this period of several decades, and there have been kind of three different big chapters 
And the big different overriding themes of what is governing or leading U.S. engagement in the globe. And that global focus of the U.S. government has shaped what we've done with our Africa policy. And it has been, the answer has been more security sector assistance than more security sector assistance than more security sector assistance. So I want to get into your three case studies. But before we do that, I think it's worth drawing an overall picture of just how comprehensive the failure has been of this approach. It, it fails on its own terms in terms of stopping, you know, militants or preventing terrorism. It fails in its uh, it fails in uh, the context of, you know, if you want to claim some of the higher value, some higher value goals like preserving democracy or human rights. It fails on those terms. It fails on the terms of great power competition as we're seeing in West Africa. Uh, just can you just I don't know. Give give people a sense of just how completely this is not working. Yeah, I mean, the, the one figure that I like to go back, I don't like to, it's fairly sad, but that I frequently go back to is that in the last decade, as um, you know, and, and you go back about a decade, and that's kind of when that period of five or 10 years before it kind of increases to um, the level roughly that we've had for security sector assistance for a while. It hasn't really been increasing a ton since then, but you get at that level and we've had these close relationships with a number of countries um, over the last decade. We have really been using this and promising this as a solution to expanding um, you know, Islamic extremism in these different areas and, and with the claim that this is going to help promote democracy. But in the past decade or so, um, terrorist violence in Africa has increased 300%. And, you know, if your one goal, and I've heard many people describe different goals for the security sector assistance. Some people say, you know, it's about, you know, increasing stability. Some people say it's basically just about, you know, kind of pursuing the terrorists that we are afraid will come after U.S. interests in the United States. You know, others say it is, some people will be, you know, even more basic and say, whatever we're doing, it's about building influence and relationships. It's not doing any of this. Um, we've seen a very dramatic increase in violence and instability. We've seen an increase in the influence and reach of, of Russia and, uh, you know, particularly with the Wagner Group and, and other scenarios as well. We've seen U.S. influence on the global stage vis-a-vis our African partners has actually decreased as well. Um, one of the ways we sought to demonstrate this, because it's a hard thing to measure, is UN General Assembly votes. This is a very, you know, it's a, it's a pretty um, kind of uh, basics, oversimplified way of looking at it. But if you look at what China has focused on, and again, this goes to that idea, we're buying influence, we're building influence on these governments. Um, in the past 10 years or so, China has been focused primarily on, on economic engagements all across Africa, Belt and Road Initiative. Um, they've increased the number of embassies and consulates that they have across, the, uh, across Africa. They have increased the number of students. They now have more African students studying in China than the U.S. and the U.K. combined have African students in their countries. So China's been going big on economics and and that soft power, you know, that outreach, that training. And voting alliance between African countries and and, and China in the U.N. General Assembly, kind of the number of times that they are voting with China on U.N. General Assembly issues has dramatically increased. And in that same period, alliance with U.S., uh, preferences in UN General Assembly votes, while we've been focusing on military, has actually dropped. So we're not even winning votes in the UN General Assembly uh, with these partnerships. So, you know, at the basic levels, you've seen much more violence, much more instability, and less influence than we had before um, kind of this this height of security sector assistance. So um, it's just, it's not delivering. And I think the icing on the cake, unfortunately, is has been this rash of of coups across the Sahel in the past, you know, three or four years. Um, I mean, if we're looking for more states for it to be safer, it's not. If we're looking for more influence, it's not. And if we're looking for it to be more democratic, it sure as hell isn't. So, as I say in the report, I'm not proposing that we don't do security sector assistance because I do think that there are ways in which it can be useful. I think we see that in other parts of the world, but in Africa, most of our partners are where we're focusing on security sector assistance are far, they're they're weaker governments, weaker institutions, and those are riskier. 
And I just think we need to be a lot more honest about what the results are. And we need to actually try and measure them, which sounds remarkable because we don't do anything to assess what the impact really is. American Prestige is brought to you in partnership with The Nation magazine. Please consider becoming a subscriber at AmericanPrestigePod.com forward slash subscribe. As a subscriber, you'll get access to dozens of exclusive bonus episodes, including breaking news specials, deep dives into regional histories, analysis of movies and video games, and much more. And if you subscribe at the founder's level, you'll be able to claim a year digital subscription to The Nation. Thank you for listening. And now, back to the show. So let's start in the Sahel. Let's start with Burkina Faso, which is the first of the three cases that you look at in, in some detail in the report. The, here, This is, to me, the starkest case. The U.S. goes in um, almost as a prophylaxis to prevent spillover from jihadist violence that's happening in other parts of West Africa. And I mean, it, it, it does nothing. It achieves nothing on the counterterrorism front. Burkina Faso has gone, you know, it is now in, in mired in a, a huge struggle with jihadist extremists. It's had coups, two coups that put the military in power. The military is turning toward Russia, if you want to look at it on a great power perspective. Can you just sort of describe the the thought process that, that's gone into this uh, the policy specifically in, in Burkina Faso? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you, you know, you described it well. I mean, the idea, it was at a time when Burkina Faso, we first started doing kind of the um, early 2000s about trying to prevent what what we saw happening in other places. And, you know, the idea was we're going to ensure that before those threats arrive in Burkina Faso, this government and this military are ready to take this on, that they're trained in counterterrorism, that they know how to prevent that that outcome in in this place. And one of the reasons that we're seeing this even today, right, after several countries in West Africa where we have had close relationships have now really fallen to um, you know, to extremist violence, the idea is, well, let's go to the littoral states where they don't really have much yet and let's prevent, you know, that violence from coming here. Let's prevent that terrorism from coming here. So it's this is why it's so important to look at the Burkina Faso example. That prevention did not work. In fact, it may have helped precipitate um, violence arriving sooner and perhaps violence arriving that might not have otherwise. Now, I'll be the first to admit, I, I mean, I, you know, you, you can't prove a causal line here that U.S. security sector assistance in Burkina Faso necessarily caused this violence. I think it's a pretty easy bet to say it did not prevent uh, terrorism from arriving in Burkina Faso. I think that's that's fairly obvious. One of the responses I have gotten from some people who are real advocates of, of U.S. security sector assistance in West Africa is, well, we don't know how much worse it might have been. And for me, I think that's really not very persuasive. Yeah. Well, can I, I, so I, I mean, is the <laughs> assumption that it would have been worse? Because I don't know that that necessarily follows. Uh, and, you know, we can talk about the ways in which the security assistance was turned on Fulani tribesmen who had maybe had yeah. nothing to do with terrorism and radicalized and could have radicalized yeah. them. I think there's a strong case to be made that that uh, not only would it not have been worse, it would have been better. But I'm sorry, I, I, yeah. that sort of I, struck me. I believe that, right? I, I believe you're absolutely right. I believe that this influx of a dramatic increase in security equipment and training and resources which is what we saw in Burkina Faso over a period of time. And it started, I think, when when we first, uh, around 2006, I don't have to look the exact years up, but I think around then we maybe had like $200,000 a year of assistance going to Burkina Faso. And within a few years, it was in, it was in millions. And I mean, part of this is these are very, someone in the Pentagon will look at this and say, these are piddly little numbers. They're not a big deal. But when you're talking about small countries with small governments and small militaries, you know, the amount of money, even a small amount of security sector assistance can dramatically change the balance of power between the civilian leadership and the military. It can dramatically change. Um, and it can be really hard for these um, these forces to absorb in a way that is not corrupted and compromised. Um, that's natural. We, we've seen that in a lot of places. We come in, we flood it with what we see as a small amount of money. But 
we do it with very little oversight as well. So as, as you referenced, what we saw in Burkina Faso is that you had these empowered militaries who were trained and equipped to kill much better. And then they turned that assistance, they turned that capacity, that capability on a minority group that was not in, in favor of the government. A minority group, and this happened, we see this all over the place. Many, many of these countries have kind of um, groups that are empowered and run most of the, the businesses and commerce and run the government. And then you have other groups that are um, you know, far less empowered, don't have a lot of access or control over government commerce or or opportunity. And so, you know, when you increase the oppression on these minority groups, you do exactly as you say, you basically foster extremism. Um, there have been numerous studies by the United Nations and others where they ask individuals, you know, what turned them to extremism. And majority of the time in a lot of these countries, and I referenced a couple of these reports in my report, um, you know, it's, it's actions of the government that it's basically um, you know, actions of the government against them or their families or people they know that made them turn to extremism. And our security assistance is helping perpetuate that because when we provide this assistance, we're not ensuring and we don't have guardrails on it to make sure that it's not being used to foster inequity and violence against civilians. And so we saw that um, in Burkina Faso. Um, it's a good example because, you know, as you mentioned, this was a place that was not dealing with the terrorist uh, scenario with the terrorist threat when we first arrived. And today it has absolutely gone down the hole. Not only have they had, you know, a series of, of coups, but since the, since the last coup, they have had a dramatic increase in terrorist violence. And we're in a position where, you know, is the answer, we provide more security assistance because we have not demonstrated that that actually leads to better outcomes. But there are there's still this belief that if you want to make it better, you offer more without really probing if that's helping or hurting. I mean, in this case, it's hard to even know how you would offer more at this point because the the channels, I mean, the, the, you know, they've cut off relations with the EU, with France. It's, you know, it's hard to, even with the economic community of West African states at this point, uh, it's hard to even know. And this gets into the influence question, but it's hard to know how the U.S. would even go about that. Yeah, and I mean, I think in I think in these particular states in in West Africa, you know, I, I we need to take lessons learned because I agree. I don't think we're in a position right now where there's a lot that we can do. I think it's important to roll back our expectations and look into where we can have an influence. Again, not in you know the next two years, but generationally. And so I, I'm a big advocate of maintaining a presence where we can continuing to do that soft power outreach. And, you know, you never know when you might have a breakthrough with somebody who's going to be up and coming. But these are, you know, small dollar, low footprint engagements. But, you know, that's the only way we're going to hope to have some impact in the future. For now, I think we just need to take the lessons we've learned here and try not to make the same mistakes elsewhere. Your second second case is Cameroon, and there's some similarities here. Um, if anything, Cameroon at the time that the U.S. really went in was dealing with an actual jihadist problem. Boko Haram crossing from you know crossing over the border from Nigeria was a, was a serious concern. But it's the same dynamics. Like, oh, thanks for the security assistance, but we're going to use it against this other group that we don't like that isn't really you know, it doesn't pose the same kind of threat. And you probably would prefer that we didn't do this, but we're going to do it anyway. Can you talk about the, the Cameroon case? Yeah, I mean, in the, the case of Cameroon, uh, you know, we we did a lot to help boost and improve the efficiency and effectiveness of uh, certain parts of their military forces. And they turned around and, you know, there were some successes against Boko Haram, frankly. I mean, I, you know, you can't deny some of that. Um, but well, and, and you'll have some folks in the U.S. government who will look at Cameroon and say, well, you know, Boko Haram, that, that it definitely became less of a threat there. But one of the reasons it became less of a threat was because there was a whole other extremist group building, um, a, a separate one that managed to beat down Boko Haram as well. And where do you have that growth of like, new people who are open to joining extremist groups? And it's this abuse from a government that is targeting a specific segment of the of the population, and in the case of Cameroon, it's it's um, you know the government's target. The uh, the victims of the government are frequently the the um, the anglophone uh, portion of the country, which is a kind of a, a separate cultural group. 
so now, you know, we have U.S. trained military um, and U.S. supplies and provisions that are helping to fight a civil war that is not making Cameroon any more safe or any more stable. Um, and that civil war, because in part, you've got a Cameroonian military that's gotten more effective at oppression. It's feeding more, uh, you know, more recruiting for more extremist groups um, as well. So you've got the, the extremist problem there still, which is growing based on the increasing oppression from the government. And you also have this this now kind of civil war in action between um, you know, kind of a, a big portion of the of the country. I mean, it's certainly not more stable. So you go back to that basic question of what's the purpose of the security sector assistance? Less violence? Nope. Greater democracy? Nope. More influence? We're really not demonstrating that we can that we can shape the decisions or paths of these governments either. So um, you know, Cameroon is again. We tried to use examples that had kind of different bad outcomes, and Cameroon's is this whole separate conflict that we have in some ways, um, you know, enabled. Ethiopia, your third case is yeah different again, a different kind of background. Ethiopia didn't uh, wasn't dealing with its own terrorist threat, but was viewed uh, has been viewed by the U.S. as a bulwark in the region. Uh, in a place that can can deal with you know what's happening in Somalia and and you know other parts of uh, East Africa, how did U.S. security assistance play into what we have seen in Ethiopia over the past several years? The the civil war, the I would say growing authoritarianism of Abiy Ahmed's government. Um, talk about that link. In Ethiopia is such a complex challenge, and it's one where, frankly, I'm not sure what America's best next move is. And it is a, a powerful and influential country, and we have relied on it in the past to, to play a pretty big role, especially on the security side. I mean, Ethiopia has traditionally had um, more well-trained, more effective, um, uh, more disciplined military than some of the other ones that we work with. But, of course, when you go back pre-Abiy Ahmed, before this current period we're in, we had a period of decades of working with uh, the TPLF. The TPLF, which was the um, basically the military and political unit of the uh, of the Tigrayan people, which are a very very small minority in Ethiopia, um, but which controlled the country and and basically you know all of the assets of the country for many many years with U.S. support and facilitation. So you know, this was a, a government that we helped prop up, that we helped boost, that we helped train. Um, and equip because they were helping us fight a different war that we were interested in, which was Somalia. Somalia is a whole other conversation. Um, but for purposes of this example, we'll just say Somalia is not peaceful yet. <laughs> and all of the support that we've given to Ethiopia has not yet solved the Somalia problem. In fact, if you look back a number of years when Ethiopia um, basically invaded Somalia kind of on our behalf, uh, that did not lead to good things. So uh, it's a long-standing relationship, and it's a place and where— And just to say, I mean, to bring it right uh, fully up to the present day, Ethiopia and Somalia might go to war now over uh, Somaliland. And, and, you know, <laughs> so everything's working out great. Sorry, I just wanted to add that. No, no right. I mean, President, yeah, it's an example. Um, so we supported the TPLF for a very long time, um, robustly, because it was kind of you know our core in the region. And— during this time, the TPLF was, of course, using all its power and authority to oppress a lot of other people in Ethiopia. Um, you're seeing that kind of play out today as Ethiopia is dealing with its own fractions, huge fractions. I mean, a real fear of potential balkanization in Ethiopia, which is a large populous country. So a lot of that is the legacy of, you know, the TPLF kept Ethiopia kind of under a strong thumb and um, and we were part of how what helped keep them that way, even though it was clearly very authoritarian, not a democracy by any stretch. So fast forward to a few years ago when Abiy Ahmed came to power, the TPLF were pushed out. Suddenly, the United States is like, whoa, our guys are out of power. We better make nice with the new guy. And so we tripped over ourselves to basically make up for decades of helping prop up an oppressive government. Lo and behold, we started tripping over ourselves to prop up another oppressor. Uh, so you know, these things are complex. I guess the, the long and short of it is we're not going to spend all of our foreign policy currency supporting democracies and good guys. I understand that. That's unrealistic. But 
when we're helping, you know, authoritarians and bad actors, we better be getting something out of it. And I think when you look at the security sector assistance on the continent, it's really unclear that we've gotten anything out of it from some of these places. And Ethiopia is a good example. We've gotten to this point. We are not trusted by the current Ethiopian government. We do not have much, if any, influence over that government. We're seeing uh, the Ethiopian government today turn to lots of other parties and take a lot of action that's not in our interests in the region. And you know, now we've got Abiy Ahmed, who's who is, as you say, basically ready to go to war with just about anyone, it seems. Um, but there, you know, a very, very real concern with a fracture line between Ethiopia and and Somalia based on the recent recognition of Somaliland. So it's it's wildly complicated. And I'm not even sure we've got a direct line to call to, to you know, even try and influence the Ethiopian government today. I want to talk about what a better U.S. approach might look like. But before we do that, I think, I mean, I'm sure you've heard these arguments. You know, I, th- what we're talking about is is sort of couched in the idea that the U.S. is, um, I guess, I mean, incompetent in a sense. I mean, it doesn't know what it's doing, basically. And again, I'm not talking about individual people working for the U.S. government, but inst- as an institution, the U.S. government is just bad at this. It's bad at these these kinds of uh, security assistance deals and, and relationships. But there are arguments that people will make that this is, in fact, what the U.S. wants. It wants instability in, in Africa. It, it, you know, this is the policy outcome that it it chooses, uh, it opts into, and and everything else is sort of just playing, you know, window dressing. Do you do you hear those arguments? And what what's your sort of as somebody who has been in the in the U.S. government and worked on this stuff? How do you respond to that that argument? I mean, I've certainly heard those arguments, and you know, I, I don't believe that there is an interest in instability in these countries in particular, because I think what we have to benefit from on the continent would would only be in any of these places more stability. I mean, let's let's start from the top of, you know, our biggest interest, let's say, is preventing terrorist attacks on U.S. interests in the United States. I mean, you know, if if the whole place is is completely ungovernable, that's not going to help us. Um, you know, keep tabs on the quote unquote bad guys anywhere. So I don't think that that necessarily serves us. And I do think that there is a world where inside the U.S. government, inside the Pentagon, um, inside the State Department, of course, there is a recognition that Africa might be considered very, very low on the priority list today. But um, demographically, it's going to become either a huge, a huge positive or a a huge problem for the world. just, just based on the sheer, sheer numbers of people that they're going to have and the, the climate impact they're going to have. So it's you know long answer to, I don't think anyone inside the government really wants to keep Africa, um, you know, at, at, at odds um, and unstable. What I hear more often is that we're not particularly concerned if it's stable or not, we just want influence. Um, and I do think that there are a number of people in the government who feel that way. They don't particularly, they're, they're not you know, staying up at night worried about whether this place is governed by a military junta or a democratic government, but they want to make sure that if we need them to do X for us, that they will. And that's not working right now too well. So anyone who thinks that the security sector assistance has delivered that outcome, I mean, all of the facts demonstrated is not so. Um, You know, there were really, really embarrassing reports of, you know, kind of like just the day before the, the coup in Niger, a super, super close security partner of ours. I mean, we had high level folks talking to the top of their military leadership and and they just act like everything was fine and 12 hours later too. I mean, if you don't have a relationship where you're figuring that out, then we've got a real problem. So I actually do think that it's 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 not incompetence. It's not a lack of interest, but I do think structurally there are very real obstacles to having more effective security sector assistance in Africa. And so that's why you know, my recommendations, our recommendations in the report really focus on let's rein it in and do what we can do well, which goes against that core American, you know, oorah interest and in bad things are happening. So we're going to go do stuff. Um, and I understand this and I have seen it, you know, a crisis is happening and it is all hands on deck to figure out what you can do that means the most, the fastest. And that is just not always corresponding with positive outcomes. In fact, it frequently corresponds with bad ones. Um, 
it's a little outside the security sector assistance realm, but just a good example of how this works is let's say how we address, you know, peacekeeping, well, peace efforts, efforts at conflict resolution. You know, the, the, the core interest immediately is how do we stop fighting as fast as possible? And I understand that. But what it often leads to is really bad deals where we just split up power and resources between the folks who are causing all the problems. And that's that, that urgency that we need to do something. We need to get people to sign a deal. We need to, um, you know, we, we need to have it deliverable and we need to do it fast because there's an election (laughs) and it's, it's structurally built that way. And so I think it's just essential that we build in some, you know, some guardrails that make us answer harder questions before we launch consequential actions. And that's a lot of what we talk about in the report. You know, are there ways to say, we're not going to, you know, we don't have to stop all security sector assistance, but can we be more rigorous in determining not just what the influence of this particular security assistance program will be on this particular military unit, but what will the impact of this particular security sector assistance program be on this unit, the broader military, the civilian military relations, that, you know, that group of, you know, the civilians, the population on the ground that's going to be around where some of these operations are happening. And it might sound shocking, but we are not assessing that when we decide to do these types of programs. We're not assessing it at all. So what would a a better U.S. approach look like and what kinds of structural challenges do you think you would run up against trying to implement this? For example, you know, we talked a lot about where the resources are. I don't see in this political environment uh, drawing down the trillion dollar security state uh, to boost funding for you know, humanitarian assistance or diplomacy. So the resources are still going to be there rather than in, in these other places. But what what realistically could could be done here to improve things? And I really want to talk about the measurement aspect of this in some detail. So maybe let's leave that for, for my follow-up question and, and talk about some of the other pieces of what it would look like. Well, I think there I think there are some really you kind know, of boring bureaucratic things that can be done to change um, our approach. Um, and again, most of it, you know, the, the title of the report is less is more. Most of it is leaning towards taking more time to focus on fewer places and, and doing what we do there right. But, um, you know, I do think that there is a need for, again, the small money, but more resources in parts of the State Department, um, the DRL, which is the Human Rights Bureau, that is charged with things like Leahy vetting, Leahy vetting, it's under, um, I mean, Leahy vetting is basically a, a system of um, requiring the U.S. government to vet all units and individuals that are receiving uh, U.S. security sector assistance so that we do not give security assistance, security sector assistance to bad guys who are going to use it to abuse people. Um, there are a million ways to avoid actually implementing um that we'll say the spirit of the Leahy law rather than like the actual law, the Leahy law, which is we simply haven't resourced the people who do the human rights vetting. So that's you know, like one specific example. Um, but the resources, I mean, first of all, you're right. We're, we're not likely to get a lot from those. Although I do think that there is by um, bipartisan support for Leahy and you're really seeing a reemergence of scrutiny on or an interest in scrutiny on security sector assistance right now with what's happening with Israel. So I think you could get some interest in this, but the resources and the the structure inside, let's say the State Department for vetting uh, how we're doing this, that's one thing. But I think the bigger problem is the culture. And it's a lot harder to change culture. It's a lot harder to change culture than just throwing money and resources at a problem. And the culture that we have is, is this. And this is why I don't blame the Pentagon for our securitized foreign policy. The culture we have is one where, again, getting into boring bureaucratic stuff here, but if you're going to move up the ladder in the State Department, you move up you know, based on incentive structures that reward managing more people, more money, more programs. That's a crude way of putting it, but it is true, right? So you move up and, and, and you move up and demonstrate that you're a good diplomat by showing the influence and the access that you have to your counterparts in different countries. So these incentives do not lead anyone 
who is heading up a mission in country X to say, you know what, this isn't working. We should cut that multi-million dollar program or that hundred million dollar program. We should cut that because they're not doing anything good for it, uh, good with it, because it's potentially abusive and because, you know, we're, we're not getting U.S. interest benefits out of this. Nobody gets promoted for saying that. Um, it's just not in our system. And so we need a cultural shift. But because of that, you know, there's also that innate desire to be able to say, you know, I'm in this country, I have great relationships with the government. And if you need a phone call or a demarche delivered or a message given, you know, your, your embassy mission can do that because we've got this great relationship with our bilateral partners here. Again, delivering bad messages does not help with that relationship. And, and if you've got a bad relationship and they're shutting the door on you, that doesn't look good for a diplomat in their kind of career progression. So again, boring issues here, but they are fundamental to, you know, what we are incentivizing our civilian foreign affairs teams to do. And that's one of the reasons why they continue, why, you know, and I was part of this once upon a time, you know, to really seek to promote and engage in more security sector assistance. So I think finding a way to incentivize, you know, to reward people or noting that, you know, this isn't going well for us, and, um, you know, we should find ways to, to change and shift. I think that's a great place to end. So uh, on a maybe hopeful <laughs> note that something could change, probably, you know, we're being naive, but who's to say? Uh, Elizabeth Shackelford, again, the book is The Descent Channel. Uh, the report, Less is More, A New Strategy for U.S. Security Assistance to Africa, is available at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs website. Elizabeth, thanks again so much for coming on the program. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.